Well, good morning, everybody. I wanted to give you a quick update because several of you were asking, and that just helps make sure everybody knows what's going on, right? Um, we did close on our house on Monday, so that's awesome. Praise God for that. It actually went pretty, uh, pretty smooth compared to some other things that we had to do with the other house, but everything there worked out and is all settled, and so we are in the new house here and actually living in town, and things are calming down a little bit, so that's good news. We're excited about that. Um, yeah, hey. And uh, I, Matt told me a little bit, we'll, we'll try to make sure next week that uh, maybe I get my family up here so you can all put the faces together and actually connect the dots on which ones belong to me and all that kind of stuff. I was talking to Matt about that beforehand. We'll get them up here and, and take care of that and make sure you're all introduced properly uh, maybe next week. But as we get started this morning, uh, talking about my kids and talking about my family, um, there's this thing that was kind of a big deal in my life growing up. I had this pool outside of my house, and from the earliest times I can remember, I remember my dad kind of launching me into a pool, not that pool, but a pool, and swimming always being a big deal. I was always in the water if I could uh, manage it, and my wife, in the same way, grew up swimming. She was on swim teams. She was a lifeguard. She taught swim lessons. Swimming's always been a big deal to us, and living the last eight years in Tennessee where everything's on a slant and water doesn't stay in pools, um... We didn't necessarily have pools close by, and summer was always a busy season with youth ministry, and we didn't always get there, but we wanted our kids to learn how to swim, right? And so we put them into swim lessons so that they could learn and feel comfortable so that when we did have those opportunities, they were uh, able to enjoy that and swim confidently and comfortably. And so we would take them the last couple years, the oldest two, Elia and Nora, to University of Tennessee. They had a big pool there, and they would teach lessons. A lot of times students that uh, were on the swim team or worked there would teach these lessons. And I always enjoy they have this big bench that they submerge down right at the edge of the pool. And so these little kids are grabbing onto the side and they're kind of hanging out on this bench where they can keep their head above water and they're playing. And they'll do group like, all right, everybody put your head under together and blow bubbles and then get them used to the water and kind of wor- warm them up to this idea of swimming. And maybe the instructor will take turns getting them out on the paddleboard and, all right, kick your feet, come out here to me, back and forth. You're kind of watching this progress. But as these two weeks kind of move on, they start eventually, at the end of each lesson, going over to the diving board. And the diving board is over here, and it's a little high off the water, right? And the instructor will swim out into the middle, into the deep, right at the end of the diving board. And these kids will line up on this diving board and take turns jumping off. And then she'll help them swim back to the side just again to kind of work up that confidence, work up that bravery in terms of swimming. And it's funny, there's different kids. As you watch these lessons and you watch this entire class go on, there's different ways the kids approach this diving board. There's that kid who probably has a pool at home who's overly confident in their skills and abilities. Who They don't even bother to check to make sure the instructor's there. They're just ready to run off the edge, right? They just want to run to the edge, jump. And then they kind of wave the instructor off like, I got this. They're probably that kid that needs to be in the next class up, right? Because they, there's just no problem. I got this, and I'll swim straight to the edge with no problems. And then there's the, the other kid who's not far off of that, but they kind of walk up kind of slow, and they kind of get to the edge, and they prep a little bit. They make sure the instructor's there. Does everything look cool? Am I good? Are you sure I'm good? Okay. And they jump in, and it's cool, and they let the instructor help them back to the side. But then there's that one kid who's like, Every step out onto the diving board is cautious and slow, and this thing is wiggly and bouncy, and I'm not so sure. I've even seen those kids like, okay, I'm going to sit down on the edge of this thing, and I'm going to kind of hold on a rock until I kind of 
slide off the edge to the instructor, and they got to get close. They got to be right there. Like, I'm really not sure about this. This board feels a little unsteady, but it feels, still feels safer than the distance it is to the water, right? And then there's the kid who sadly tended to be ours at different points. Both of them, I think, kind of went through this phase where I am not confident in this at all. And I'm going to slowly walk out to the edge. It's really high. And that water's really deep. And I'm not really sure. No, I'm not doing this. And they walk back the other way. And everybody's cheering them on. Everybody's acting them on. I'm like, okay. Uh, no, no, I'm not. No, can't do this. And they walk back three or four times. And it never fails. Like, our kids kind of went through this, each of them. And they would work their way out to the board, and they would think about it, and they'd really... And they just get upset and sad. They really wanted to be like everybody else. They really wanted to have the bravery to step off the board and dive in, but they just couldn't bring themselves to do it until like the last lesson. The two weeks is about over, and they finally jump off and like, oh, that was great. I love it. Let's do it some more. Sorry, lessons are over. Like you missed out on your opportunity. You, you jump like everybody else got bunches of turns on the diving board, and then Nora's left like going, I wish I was doing it more. And it's just like, no, no more lessons. So. Regardless of which attitude they had approaching the board, I think the reality is the same. There's the safety in this board. It's bouncy, it's wibbly, wobbly, it's, it's like, it doesn't feel real secure, but it like my feet are touching it. That water's really deep, like my feet won't touch anything. I'll sink to the bottom, I think, in my head, because I can't relax enough to float. There's this idea that I really kind of know this person, but I kind of don't. There's a lot of safety and security in standing where our feet can touch. We look at all the circumstances, all the physical things that look scary, and kind of process, and our brain says, nope, it's safer here where you're at than going in there. And for us, I think we all kind of face our own diving board in terms of what we're willing to step off of, what we're willing to jump into, what are we wanting to hold on to, and how do we process and calculate what's worth jumping off for. And so this morning, I kind of want to continue this series, Building Blocks. We started the first week talking about the cornerstone, how no earthly leader is going to live up to the expectations that we want them to, that they're going to fall, they're going to make mistakes, and the only leader that we can confidently build on is Christ, the cornerstone, the one who has never failed, the one who has lived a blameless life, the only one who can save us from our sins. He's the one that we must build on. And then the next week we started talking about humility, this idea that as I wrestle with my faith and I wrestle with the truth, I sometimes just want to be right. And I defend the truth by worrying about whether I'm right or wrong rather than letting the word and truth that is Jesus in his life, the word made flesh. Rather than allowing it to transform us, we care more about being right than we do about other people. And we talked about the need to find a humble place in our life where we recognize that we were wrong, we are broken, we are a mess, and that we continue to be a broken mess that needs to be transformed And therefore, we have to humble ourselves and let the word transform us. But this morning, we want to talk about this idea of humility in a different sense, in terms of tangible things that we hold on to. And you might be thinking, that sounds more like bravery than humility. But I want to dive into that conversation this morning and talk about the things that we need to let go of in order to move forward. So if you would, bow your heads. We're going to go to God's word in just a second to look at some stories and to talk through that. But I want to... uh, enter into a word of prayer before we do that. Father, I love you and I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for your life and I'm thankful that we can build our lives and our ministry and our our 
efforts on you and your name and only you and your name. I'm thankful that you transform us through your word, and I'm thankful that you are working in each of our hearts and in our lives. And sometimes, Father, we need to, just as Matt said earlier, be still and allow ourselves space and time for rest in order to be transformed. And so this morning, Father, I pray that we would humble ourselves and be quiet and be still and allow our hearts to be transformed by your word. I love you, and it's my desire to walk away different than I walked in this morning. It's in the wonderful name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. So, the story we're going to look at this morning might make sense in terms of our illustration of jumping off a diving board. It's one that is found in Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, and John chapter 6. So you can look all three of those up at the same time. That be, no, I'm just teasing. Um, got three Bibles spread out in your lap. That's totally cool. Uh, but we are going to look at this passage of Scripture, and we're going to look at Matthew's 14, if you want to go there and, and kind of flip to that. But I want to set up a little bit of what's been going on before we look at this specific story. Because Jesus has been starting his ministry. If we look at the different accounts of what's happening, there's a lot of things we can learn about what's already happened. Jesus has been going around, if we look at Mark, he's, he's already been out on a boat with his disciples and told the winds and the waves to stop and calm down and everything was still. He's been to places where he's cast out demons. He's been in situations where he has healed the sick that no one else could help. He's been in situations where he actually gave back life to a young child. He's doing these amazing things and word is spreading and more and more people are pressing in to follow him, to get close. They want to be a part of what's happening in this ministry so much so these massive crowds are following him and he's moving up this hillside because the crowds just keep pressing in. There's so much desire to both hear his teaching and see what miraculous thing he might do next. The crowd just wants more. And here in this passage, this crowd is gathered around. If we look at the different accounts, there's different uh, kind of details we can learn. But in this moment, Jesus in John chapter 6 kind of says, and we're not, I promise, I didn't switch books on you. I'm just talking back and forth about the preface of this story. John chapter 6, he says, hey, you think we could get bread for these people? Where do you think we could buy bread for these people? He kind of says to Philip, and Philip said, man, if we worked all year long, there is no way we could earn enough money to feed these people, because the passage says there are 5,000 men alone. Just the men that are counted here are 5,000, so we know there's well more, like quite a few more than that in this situation, and he's like, there's no way we could feed them, and Andrew, Peter's brother, speaks up. He says, well, this little guy's got five barley loaves and two fish. And Jesus takes this little amount of lunch, and he starts to bless it, and he starts to break it, and he starts to multiply it. And all of a sudden, the little bit that was there, he's turned into this great feast that's fed all of these people, not just giving them a snack. It says they ate until they were satisfied and full. And again, this crowd is not the affluent who have everything that they need. This is a group of people in a lot of ways that are pursuing this Jesus, hoping that he'll provide healing for them, hoping that he'll provide answers for them. I would imagine there are quite a few people in this multitude who haven't had a good meal in a while. And here they are eating until they're satisfied. And Jesus, I love this moment, says, why don't you go collect the leftovers? Because I know there were only five loaves to start with and two fish, but there's leftovers now. They've all eaten until they're satisfied, and they collect 12 baskets full. The way that he provides for these people in this moment is just crazy. And that is 
what has happened in these moments before where we're going to start picking up and reading. Because here's the thing. In all of this crowd following Jesus, things start to get a little out of hand. And after they've seen this amazing feat, they're ready to crown him king. If he can provide for the needs of the people like this, man, we need to put a crown on him. We need to put him in a place of position. Because here's the thing. At this point, people still think the Messiah is coming to overthrow Rome. They think the Messiah is still coming to fill David's throne and to be of his line and to be the king that won't go away, that will bring Jerusalem back to a nation of power and position and fulfill God's promises in the ways that are tangible and visible and I can see and I can touch and I can feel. They want to build this earthly kingdom that they've known in the past and Jesus knows that's not the plan. And so he kind of presses back and in Matthew chapter 14 is where we're going to pick up this story. And see what happens next. Starting in verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way off. If we actually look at John, it says three to four miles off the coast. From the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, think about this for just a second. We'll pick back up in just a moment. Again, the disciples have already been in a boat where Jesus calms the winds and the waves. In fact, they asked themselves that question in Mark chapter 4. They said, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey his voice? We know the answer, right? We talked about it last week. He is the truth. He is truth. He is God's word made flesh. And when God's word speaks into this world, the same voice, the same word that created everything we know speaks, everything must listen, right? And Peter recognizes that even the winds and the waves obey his voice. So if he's walking on the water, and if it really is him, if he calls me, I should be able to come out too, right? And so Jesus says this, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. And came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now look at this passage of Scripture, and we, we, we kind of, Maybe you've heard this before, maybe you're familiar with it, maybe not, that's fine either way. But this story is always when we talk about, and, and we, we talk about this moment where Peter is doing fine. He's walking on the water, he's accomplishing what it is that God has given him the ability to do. Christ is saying, yes, come to me, I'll let you walk on the water. I grew up with that pool I told you about. I mean, I'd throw rafts out there and try to walk and stand on those. I would, uh, don't ever do this, this is a really bad idea, but you have those solar blankets that are across the top. I tried to run across one of those one time. That's really a poor choice. Don't do that. Um, it's a lot easier. It's just not easy to be on top of that thing. Just trust me. Um, 
all the things that you try to do on our own power, on our own understanding, what we think we know to walk on water, we can't do it. This is a crazy concept to think about putting your foot on top of the water and walking across it. Yet he's accomplishing it because Christ has given him the ability to do it. He's giving him everything he needs to be okay in this moment until Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus and off of the source of his ability, the source of his strength, the source of his provision, and he starts to focus on all the tangible things around him. He sees the wind, he sees the waves, he sees the distance to the pool, he sees all these uncertainties and goes, ah, I don't know, and in that moment, he starts to sink. Because all of a sudden, it's more about the things I can hold on to, it's more about the tangible things I can touch, the things I know, the things I understand, the things I think I grasp, And he starts to sink. And Jesus, fortunately, is there to grab his hand and to pull him to the boat. And they get back in, and he's like, why did you doubt? Why did you take your eyes off me? Why did you have such little faith? You've seen me provide. You just saw me feed multitudes of people with nothing. You saw me walking on the water. You yourself saw for a moment you walking on the water. And yet you still let those physical things that you could see around you distract you and cause you to lose faith, cause you to doubt what could be, cause you to doubt what it was I was calling you to do. And all of a sudden you start to sink. And if we talk about what it is that we hold on to, what it is we look at, what are the things we're seeing around us, what are the things that we're holding on to around us, there's this author by the name of Donald Miller. And I really appreciate his book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, because um, in this book, he's actually talking about another book he wrote previously. It was called Blue Like Jazz, and some of you may have read Blue Like Jazz. I did. At the time, it was really beneficial to me. Even Donald Miller now looks back and says, I'm not sure how I feel about Blue Like Jazz. But at the time, it was this really um, beneficial book, and there's some really powerful scenes that made us wrestle with really tough questions, and it caught the eye of some guys who make movies. And they said, hey, we want to take this book, which is a compilation of a bunch of essays about your life that are all scattered different stories, and we want to make it a movie. And he's kind of going, a movie? Like, it's not a story. It's a bunch of little stories. How are you going to make that a movie? And they said, we just think some of these scenes need to be in a movie. And now some of, the, some of you, the light's clicking on, because you may not have read the book, but you're like, oh, yeah, I remember there being a movie about that somewhere. Blue like jazz. And they start to make this movie. And the book... A Million Miles in a Thousand Years is all about the process of the things he learned while making a movie based on things that actually happened to him. And so he sits down with these writers and he starts to talk. And as he's talking to them, they're like, what is it that Don is going to do? You know, you can imagine the awkwardness of this moment when you are Don and you're sitting in the room and they're writing a movie that's based on a book that's based on your life and they're saying, what is it we're going to have him do in the movie? He's like, why can't I just do what I was doing at the time? This is about me, right? Why can't we just say, no, that's not interesting enough. We've got to have something better than that. And you start to feel like, oh, right? All of a sudden, you were feeling pretty good about what you did. You wrote a book. You either want to make a movie about it. You were feeling pretty good about yourself. And now all of a sudden, oh, no, that's not interesting enough. Oh. Well, what if we did this? No, that's, doesn't, that's not interesting enough. That doesn't make a good story. And Donald Miller starts to wrestle with this question, what does it mean to live a good story. He said, because if we wanted to watch a movie about a good story, we would not choose the movie in which a guy gets up every morning, goes to work, punches the time clock, fills his time, 
punches out at the end of the day, goes home, collects his paycheck, and saves up those paychecks until he can buy a Volvo. That would be a really boring movie. Yet at the same time, those are the kind of stories that so many of us live. And he's wrestling with this concept of why do we settle for a day-in, day-out routine that looks like this rather than living a good story. And I thought about that. For us, our culture tells us this is how we're supposed to live life. You get to have a bit of a childhood for a while until you start school. And once you start school, you need to put in all this time and energy and effort and learn as much as you can while in school so that you get a good education. You need to learn and study hard and do all these things. And maybe in the meantime, you need to start doing some extracurriculars. Let's play this sport. Let's be in this club. Let's do these 15 different things because those will look good on a resume. And if we're lucky, maybe you'll be really good at football and play professionally, make way more money than you will at this other career. But regardless, we just keep pushing to say, okay, you got to have this, you got to have this, you got to have this. And finally, you graduate, you get that good scholarship, you go to that good school, you put in all this energy and effort and time into a degree to be the best in your field, you do internships, you do all this stuff so you can land that good job. And once you have that good job, hopefully somewhere along the way you found someone nice to settle down with and you start a family together. And you want to continue to be the best at that job, to impress people, to climb the ladder so that you can continue to make more, to buy nicer house and a nicer education and nicer things for your family so that your kids can start that same process. And somewhere along the way, hopefully we've put back enough to retire and to travel and see the world or to play a little golf or do whatever it is that we have fun doing, right? And there's this cycle of what is success. What are the things that mean we've done well? And if we start to measure based off all of those things and all of those criteria, all of a sudden we find ourselves in this spot where we look and we say, has this been a good story? Really, I think what we've done is we've found the things that we know. We know the formula. We know the steps. We know the process. We know what it means to move from point A to point B. And those are kind of the diving boards or the rails or the things that we can hold on to that feel safe. They feel secure. Maybe if we step outside of that, even if we look at just the smallest detail as our everyday routine in the morning. Anybody ever have that routine that gets thrown off one morning by something that happened out of the norm? And all of a sudden, you're just a wreck the rest of the day. Because this happened, it threw my routine completely off, and now I just don't know what to do with myself because my comfortable, normal, what I can expect, when I can expect it, and how I like things to be in the nice, neat order that I'm used to is all out of whack. And I just don't feel comfortable. I don't feel safe. I don't feel secure. Because for me, holding on to all these things I know, all these things that are predictable, all of these things that make me feel secure, my bank account, my job, my house, all the things that we hold on to, even just the weird little thing of moving back into a house and being like, oh yeah, I forgot I had that. That's nice. I can have it again. Right now, like we, we get so accustomed to having things in our life that provide comfort or provide ease that we hold on to all these little things for security. And if we look at the rest of this book, I think we would have a really hard time finding any passages where God says, my ultimate plan for you is security. In the physical sense. Eternal security in me. Confidence in knowing that you can be with me forever. That's the kind of security he wants to offer. But that doesn't mean that everything in this life and everything in this world is comfortable. And it doesn't mean that he's calling you to just be safe and have things to hold on to as a safety net. In fact, if we start to look at passages of scripture, the story looks very different. I love the story of Elisha 
when Elijah comes and says, hey, you're going to be my replacement. The dude is plowing a field, and you know what he does? He takes the, the, wild li- the animals, the, the livestock that are pulling the plow, and he kills them, and he cooks them, and he serves them to his neighbors as a meal. He takes the plows, and he destroys them, and he burns them. Because he was just called to go follow in this guy's footsteps, to be God's messenger to the people, and he doesn't want anything to fall back on. He's going to burn his security and his safety in what he was doing here to provide for himself so that he can go follow in this. And this is not a high-paying job with a lot of influence, a lot of power that's really highly respected. It's the guy who goes around telling everybody they're wrong. It's not a popular thing. It's the guy saying God is going to He's coming after you if you don't straighten up, if you don't start acting right, if you don't do the things you've been called to do. He's not a messenger with good news in this, the way we like to receive good news. And yet he burns off all of the things to fall back on to follow. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Peter, whenever Jesus encounters him, he says, come follow me. Peter leaves the nets right there where they are, fishing, his career, his livelihood, what he does to make a living, he just leaves it. And goes and starts following Jesus. So many different stories. We continue to look. The rich young ruler. I love the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? To to be a part of the kingdom of God? What do I have to do? And Jesus says, Follow the commandments. That's great. I've been doing that since I was a kid. I know the routine. I know the structure. I know what's expected of me. I have something to hold on to there because it's tangible. I can see it. I followed the rules. And Jesus says one more thing. That feels, you're right, that does feel safe. There is some security in knowing the rules and following them, but here's the next step. Everything you have, sell it and follow me. Oh, that's different. That's jumping off the diving board in a big sort of way. That requires a lot of faith that you're going to provide for me. That requires a lot of faith that things are going to be okay and over here with my possessions and the influence and the stuff I have, there's security. I don't know. I don't know if I could jump off like that. Even the simplest act in the first century of being baptized. I think for us, there's very little consequence to making a commitment and stepping into a baptistry and being baptized today. But you realize in the first century, this is a public confession of obedience I am going to follow him. I'm going to be obedient to what Jesus said, to be baptized. I'm going to step into that baptistry knowing that the Romans don't like Christians, knowing that the, the, the Israelites, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they don't like Christians. I am basically siding with one of the least favorable groups in the region at the time, publicly, by stepping out in obedience and saying, I'm willing to follow no matter what it costs me. In fact, the actual act is symbolic of dying to ourselves and being resurrected in a new life with Christ. It's nothing that symbolizes anything safe and secure here in this place. And yet for us, we think that following Jesus is this safe, wonderful thing that will just make everything better. And again, you might ask, Nick, what does any of this have to do with humility? See, Philippians chapter 2 talks about Jesus, and actually talks about being like Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he took on the nature of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. For us, obedience 
requires us to humble ourselves in a way where we let go of the things that provide security. We let go of our bank accounts, we let go of our jobs, we let go of our routine, we let go of all these things. And, you know, I've heard a lot of preachers get up and talk about that rich young ruler and and the verse that follows. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And, And we say, oh, it's okay. That doesn't actually mean that rich people can't get into the kingdom of heaven. It just means that, like, you know, we should be willing to let go. But that's fine and dandy to say. But it's really hard to actually then take the steps to let go. Because a lot of us, I think, can say, well, I think I would let go of my job if God called me to do it. I think I would let go of my finances if God called me to do it. But how many of us have ever actually felt called to do it? And we have to wrestle with that. What am I actually holding on to that still feels secure and safe? Even just the simple act of coming in here every week to feel like we've fulfilled the guidelines that feel comfortable, that feel good. I step through the process of attending every week. I study every day. I pray every day because those things I can hold on to and feel safe in. But when it comes to a thing like Sunday Chow, when it comes to a thing like Sunday night at Wheeler Mission, when it comes to a thing like knocking on doors and asking people how we can pray for them, that requires an extra little bit of letting go. Those things don't feel as safe. I got a lot of things on the calendar. I got a lot of things on my routine. I got a lot of things. And the question is, how do I need to humble myself and let go of what I think I need to be obedient? Obedient to death. Obedient to dying to myself so that I can follow and step out on the water wherever he calls me to go. Because the thing is, he's not calling me to be safe. He's calling me to recklessly follow him to accomplish his will, and that is to make disciples, to tell people about how good he is, to love him. And it's not a popular opinion to say, we got to die to ourselves. Let's get everybody to sign up. (sighs) But you know what? People were signing up back in the first century, left and right. Because like I said last week, people were actually being transformed by the truth. People were being radically changed by God's word. It was transforming who they were. It was transforming how they treated each other. It was transforming how they let go of their own possessions and gave to other people. It was transforming the way they just let go. And that was attractive because people actually saw transformed life that was transforming lives. And they wanted to follow even though it might cost them their lives. And yet today we live in a culture and in a world where we have so, so much to hold on to. And I think we need to find a quiet place to hit our knees and to say a simple prayer. It's the same prayer that Jesus had already talked to about in another similar situation when he was on a hillside with a bunch of people. And they said, how do we pray? And he says, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Provide for my needs. Give us today our daily bread. Help us to forgive others. Help us not to sin. Help us to forgive those who sinned against us. All of the things in that prayer are wrestling with how we're transformed and how his will is being done here in this place. And it's about humbling ourselves to obedience, to recognize every day, day in, day out, that this life is not about me and my security, 
this life is about seeing his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you go on to read John chapter 6, more of it, I would encourage you to read that account. It doesn't specifically talk about Peter stepping out of the boat, but what it does continue to talk about is God's provision and the way he offers the bread of life and so much rich tie-in to exactly what we're talking about today that I could spend all afternoon talking about, and I won't. But I'm telling you that when we start to recognize how Jesus can provide for our needs, just like he took that small amount of food and provided for so many, when we recognize how he can provide for us exactly what we need through difficult moments, how he can lead us through difficult circumstances, how he will be the one who allows us to walk through things we never thought we could walk through on our own strength. It's worth letting go. It's, it's, I'll leave you with this little thought. It's an illustration some of you may have heard before, but you look back at some different fun stories of colonial India and different things, and there's this story about this jar that they would put seeds in, right? And these monkeys would reach into the jar to get the fruit seeds and grab a hold of them and then go to leave. The problem is they can't. The neck's thin enough for their hand to go in this way. Once they grab a hold, they can't get back out this way with that clenched fist. And they'll run in circles and they'll scream and they'll thrash around and they just can't get loose until somebody comes along and captures them, someone comes along and kills them, some animal comes along and kills them, and ultimately their device their demise is a clenched fist that just won't let go. And sadly for us, I think a lot of us have that clenched fist. And it's ultimately going to lead to a moment where we say, I really don't know you. Did you follow me? Did you do what I called you to do? Or did you hold on to all of the comforts and the things you thought would provide you safety and security? When I told you, the only thing you can rely on is me. We have to humble ourselves to a place of obedience where we are willing to let go of everything, to fall to our knees and daily pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not an earthly kingdom for me, not comfort and status for me. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we start to live in a surrendered and obedient way where we let go of the things that we think provide us safety, that's when we truly will see transformation begin in our lives. So this morning, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'm going to ask you all to stand with me, and I'm going to ask you simply this. What prayer do you need to be praying this morning? And what thing do you need to be letting go of this morning? There are so many things that we hold on to. Maybe it's our routine and schedule. Maybe it's that job. Maybe it's that bank account that's just fine. Maybe it's what, I don't know what it is. But for some of us, our safety and security is in the stuff we can see and touch and hold and it needs to be in Jesus in a surrendered act of obedience, and we have to let go and move forward. And so this morning, whatever it is you have to do to start that process of true transformation in your life, I just simply ask that you hit your knees and ask him to make it clear to you so that you can begin to follow and step out of the boat. Let's pray. Father, I love you, and I'm thankful that I don't have all the answers because, Father, I've learned time and time again that my answers are really bad sometimes. And, Father, I know that I don't have the strength to do things on my own, and I know that I don't have the ability to provide for myself, and I know, Father, that when I put my trust in you, you have provided for me in ways I never thought were possible. 
when I offer up to you that little bit that I have to offer, Father, you can multiply it and make amazing things, not always for my benefit, but for the benefit of your kingdom. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would continue that work in me and that I would continue to let go of the things I need to let go of. And I pray that as a body, we would get serious about not just walking through the doors, through the safety and security of our every week routine, but that we would let go in a way that allows us to truly surrender to you and allow you to transform and move in our lives. I love you. It's in the holy, wonderful name of Jesus, I pray.